Hi, this is Mike Metcalf. I wanted to talk this time about prosperity, which of course is very similar to a discussion about poverty. And rather than my talk, I'd like you to listen to the work of Neil Ferguson, who I think does a very good job of explaining how some countries in the last 200 years have suddenly exploded in their prosperity. And this is more at a national, institutional, cultural level than at an individual level. So we're concerned here with designing a system that increases the prosperity of humankind, of people in your organisation. Here is Neil Ferguson's TED Talk, which lasts about 20 minutes. talk about past and future billions. We know that about 106 billion people have ever lived, and we know that most of them are dead. And we also know that most of them live or lived in Asia, and we also know that most of them were or are very poor, did not live for very long. Let's talk about billions. Let's talk about the $195,000 billion of wealth in the world today. We know that most of that wealth was made after the year 1800, and we know that most of it is currently owned by people we might call Westerners, Europeans, North Americans, Australasians. 19% of the world's population today, Westerners, own two-thirds of its wealth. Economic historians call this the Great Divergence. Uh, And this slide here is the best simplification of the Great Divergence story I can offer you. It's basically two ratios of per capita GDP, per capita gross domestic product, so average income, One, the red line, is the ratio of British to Indian per capita income, and the other, the blue line, is the ratio of American to Chinese. And this chart goes back to 1500. And you can see here that there's an exponential great divergence. They start off pretty close together. In fact, in 1500, the average Chinese was richer than the average North American. When uh, you get to the 1970s, which is where this chart ends, uh, the average Briton is more than 10 times richer than the average Indian. And that's allowing for differences in the cost of living. It's based on purchasing power parity. The average American is nearly 20 times richer than the average Chinese by, by the 1970s. So why? This wasn't just an economic story. If you take the 10 countries that went on to become the Western empires, in 1500, they were really quite tiny. 5% of the world's land surface, 16% of its population, maybe 20% of its income. By 1913, these 10 countries plus the United States controlled vast global empires. 
58% of the world's territory, about the same percentage of its population, and a really huge, nearly three-quarters share of global economic output. And notice, most of that went to the motherland, to the imperial metropoles, not to their colonial possessions. Now, you can't just blame this on imperialism, though many people have tried to do so, for two reasons. One, empire was the least original thing that the West did after 1500. Everybody did empire. They beat pre-existing oriental empires, like the Mughals and the Ottomans. So it really doesn't look like empire is a great explanation for the Great Divergence. In any case, as you may remember, the Great Divergence reaches its zenith in the 1970s, some considerable time after decolonization. This is not a new question. Samuel Johnson, the great lexicographer, opposed it through his character Rosellus in his novel Rosellus, A Prince of Abyssinia, published in 1759. By what means are the Europeans thus powerful, or why since they can so easily visit Asia and Africa for trade or conquest, cannot the Asiatics and Africans invade their coasts, plant colonies in their ports, and give laws to their natural princes? The same wind that carries them back would bring us thither. That's a great question. And you know what? It was also being asked at roughly the same time by the Westerners, by the people in the rest of the world, like Ibrahim Mutiferika. An Ottoman official, the man who introduced printing very belatedly to the Ottoman Empire, who said in a book published in 1731, why do Christian nations which were so weak in the past compared with Muslim nations begin to dominate so many lands in modern times and even defeat the once victorious Ottoman armies? Unlike Rasselas, Mutaferika had an answer to that question, which was correct. He said... It was because they have laws and rules invented by reason. It's not geography. You may think we can explain the great divergence in terms of geography. We know that's wrong because we conducted two great natural experiments in the 20th century to see if geography mattered more than institutions. We took all the Germans, we divided them roughly in two, and we gave uh, the ones in the East communism. And you see the result. Within an incredibly short period of time, people living in the German Democratic Republic produced Trabants, the Trabi, one of the world's worst ever cars, <laughs> while people in the West produced the Mercedes-Benz. If you still don't believe me, we conducted the experiment also in the Korean Peninsula. And we decided we'd take Koreans in roughly the same geographical place with, notice, the same basic traditional a culture, and we divided them in two, and we gave the northerners communism, and the result is an even bigger divergence in a very short space of time than happened in Germany. Not a big divergence in terms of uniform design for border guards, admittedly, but in almost every other respect, it's a huge divergence. Which leads me to think that neither geography nor national character, popular explanations for this kind of thing, are really significant. It's the ideas it's the institutions. This must be true because a Scotsman said it, and I think I'm the only Scotsman here at the Edinburgh TED, so let me just, let me just explain to you that the smartest man ever was a Scotsman. Uh, he was Adam Smith, not Billy Connolly, not, not Sean Connery. 
though he is very smart indeed. <laughs> Smith, and I want you to go and bow down before his statue in the Royal Mile. It's a wonderful statue. Smith, in The Wealth of Nations, published in 1776, that's the most important thing that happened that year. You bet. There was a little local difficulty in some of our minor colonies, but... China seems to have been long stationary and probably long ago acquired that full complement of riches which is consistent with the nature of its laws and institutions. But this complement may be much inferior to what with other laws and institutions the nature of its soil, climate and situation might admit of. That is so right and so cool and he said it such a long time ago. But you know... This is a TED audience, and if I keep talking about institutions, you're going to turn off. So I want to translate this into language that you can understand. Let's call them the killer apps. I want to explain to you that there were six killer apps that set the West apart from the rest. And they're kind of like the apps on your phone, in the sense that they look quite simple. They're just icons, you click on them. But behind the icon, there's complex code. It's the same with institutions. There are six which I think explain the great divergence. One, competition. Two, the scientific revolution. Three, property rights. Four, modern medicine. Five, the consumer society. And six, the work ethic. You can play a game and try and think of one I've missed out or try and boil it down to just four, but you'll lose. <laughs> Let me very briefly tell you what I mean by this, synthesizing the work of many uh, economic historians in the process. Competition means not only were there a hundred different political units in Europe in 1500, but within each of these units there was competition between corporations as well as sovereigns. The ancestor of the modern corporation, the city of London Corporation, existed in the 12th century. Nothing like this existed in China, where there was one monolithic state covering a fifth of humanity, and anyone with any ambition had to pass one standardized examination, which took three days and was very difficult, and involved memorizing vast numbers of characters and very complex Confucian essay writing. The scientific revolution was different from the science that had been achieved in the Oriental world in a number of crucial ways, the most important being that through the experimental method it gave men control over nature in a way that had not been possible before. Example, Benjamin Robbins's extraordinary application of Newtonian physics to ballistics. Once you do that, your artillery becomes accurate. Think of what that means. That really was a killer application. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's no scientific revolution anywhere else. The Ottoman Empire is not that far from Europe, but there's no scientific revolution there. In fact, they demolish Takiuddin's observatory because it's considered blasphemous to inquire into the mind of God. Property rights. It's not the democracy, folks. It's having the rule of law based on private property rights. That's what makes the difference between North America and South America. You could turn up in North America having signed a deed of indenture saying, I'll work for nothing for five years, you just have to feed me. But at the end of it, you've got 100 acres of land. That's the, the land grant on the bottom half of the slide. That's not possible in Latin America, where land is held onto by a tiny elite descended from the conquistadors. And you can see here the huge divergence that happens in property ownership between North and South. Most people 
in rural North America owned some land by 1900. Hardly anyone in South America did. That's another killer app. Modern medicine in the late 19th century began to make major breakthroughs against the infectious diseases that killed a lot of people. And this was another killer app, the very opposite of a killer because it doubled and then more than doubled human life expectancy. It even did that in the European empires. Even in places like Senegal, beginning in the early 20th century, there were major breakthroughs in public health and life expectancy began to rise. It doesn't rise any faster after these countries become independent. The empires weren't all bad. The consumer society is what you need for the Industrial Revolution to have a point. You need people to want to wear tons of clothes. You've all bought an article of clothing in the last month, I guarantee it. That's the consumer society, and it propels economic growth more than even technological change itself. Japan was the first non-Western society to embrace it. The alternative which was proposed by Mahatma Gandhi, was to institutionalize and make poverty permanent. Very few Indians today wish that India had gone down Mahatma Gandhi's road. Finally, the work ethic. Max Weber thought that was peculiarly Protestant. He was wrong. Any culture can get the work ethic if the institutions are there to create the incentive to work. We know this because today the work ethic is no longer a Protestant Western phenomenon. In fact, the West has lost its work ethic. Today, the average Korean works a thousand hours more a year than the average German. A thousand. And this is part of a really extraordinary phenomenon, and that is the end of the Great Divergence. Who's got the work ethic now? Take a look at mathematical attainment by 15-year-olds. At the top of the international league table, according to the latest PISA study, is the Shanghai district of China. The gap between Shanghai and the United Kingdom and the United States is as big as the gap between the UK and the US and Albania and Tunisia. You probably assume that because the iPhone was designed in California but assembled in China that the West still leads in terms of technological innovation. You're wrong. In terms of patents, there's no question that the East is ahead. Not only has Japan been ahead for some time, South Korea has gone into third place and China is just about to overtake Germany. Why? Because the killer apps can be downloaded. It's open source. Any society can adopt these institutions, and when they do, they achieve what the West achieved after 1500, only faster. This is the great reconvergence, and it's the biggest story of your lifetime, because it's on your watch that this is happening. It's our generation that is witnessing the end of Western predominance. The average American used to be more than 20 times richer than the average Chinese. Now it's just five times, and soon it will be 2.5 times. So I want to end with three questions for the future billions. Just ahead of 2016, when the United States will lose its place as number one economy to China. The first is, can you delete these apps? And are we in the process of doing so in the Western world? The second question is, does the sequencing of the download matter? And could Africa get that sequencing wrong? 
One obvious implication of modern economic history is that it's quite hard to transition to democracy before you've established secure private property rights. Warning, that may not work. And third, can China do without killer app number three? That's the one that John Locke systematized when he said that freedom was rooted in private property rights and the protection of law. That's the basis for the Western model of representative government. And this picture shows the demolition of the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei's studio in Shanghai earlier this year. He's now free again, having been detained, as you know, for some time, but I don't think his studio has been rebuilt. Winston Churchill once defined civilization in a lecture he gave in the fateful year of 1938. And I think these words really nail it. It means a society based upon the opinion of civilians. It means that violence, the rule of warriors and despotic chiefs, the conditions of camps and warfare, of riot and tyranny, give place to parliaments where laws are made and independent courts of justice in which over long periods those laws are maintained. That is civilization and in its soil grow continually freedom, comfort and culture, what old Tedsters care about most. When civilization reigns in any country, a wider and less harassed life is afforded to the masses of the people. That's so true. I don't think the decline of Western civilization is inevitable because I don't think history operates in this kind of life cycle model beautifully illustrated by Thomas Cole's course of empire paintings. That's not the way history works. That's not the way the West rose, and I don't think it's the way the West will fall. The West may collapse very suddenly. Complex civilizations do that because they operate most of the time on the edge of chaos. That's one of the most profound insights to come out of the historical study of complex institutions like civilizations. No, we may hang on despite the huge burdens of debt that we've accumulated, despite the evidence that we've lost our work ethic and other parts of our historical mojo. But one thing is for sure. The great divergence is over, folks. Thanks very much. So the six concepts, organizing principles, or what he called killer apps for prosperity, he suggests are competition, science, property rights, medicine, consumer society, and a work ethic. He is, of course, talking at a national or cultural level, as economists tend to do. I want to try and bring this down, I'm not sure if it'll work or not, to a personal organizational level, uh, to a work group level. So if you were trying to improve what it is that you offer the world, what products and services you offer, and you generally wanted to improve those services rather than just retain your wealth or something, then maybe we could apply these six organizing principles or apps uh, to your organization. So competition is the first one. Is there competition in your industry? 
Now, in the commercial world, maybe for products and services. However, there's awful lot of things that have government monopolies on them. Universities, health services, cultural services, art services, all ha have government monopolies on them. Uh, and I expect they would benefit from more competition in some form or other. I'm not talking about there not being regulation or there being 100% mad competition for things. We have to get the balance right. But the question is, could your organisation be more competitive? Could they somehow or other operate in a more competitive environment? I think universities are a classic example here that they pretend to compete with each other, but within nations they are really a government monopoly in terms of the definition of a university and the courses it offers and how you get a degree. The MOOCs revolution, the online computer courses, are, are challenging that to some extent. But if the only way you can get a degree is by going through what is recognised by you know, the English, American or Australian government as a process to get a degree, then these MOOCs will be unable to compete. It might be to the benefit of people's education if there was more genuine competition between universities. It's almost ironic that the top high schools or colleges tend to be private. A lot of people send their, their kids to private high schools to get very good grades to, to go to largely government-controlled universities, even calling for free university education being important for the nation, and yet they've paid for very extensive private high school education. Indeed, some of the top universities in the world, Harvard, Yale, etc., are private universities. So this isn't really a matter of for-profit organisations offer inferior services. They, they appear to offer superior services. I think the same is true of medical services and disability services, etc. So could you provide a, a more competitive... Remember we're talking about competitive in the sports sense. There's, a, there's agreed rules within which you're allowed to compete. Again, there's a sort of ironic connection between cooperation and competition. As in the example of sport, you cooperate over the rules and then compete on the field. And the same, a lot of organisations... They cooperate to a large extent in pricing, in sharing services, in agreeing not to be over-competitive, and yet they agree to compete at a certain level in a certain way. I think cooperatives, for example, could be the same thing, where companies get together and say, we'll share a shed or we'll share a logo or something, and then we'll compete underneath that. Again, universities uh, tend to really be a cooperatives where they're, they're competing at a, at, a, at a retail level, if you like, rather than that as a deep organisational level. I need to talk more later about the connection between cooperation and competition, but they are very closely connected. So it might be that for your organisation, what it needs is more cooperation in a competitive environment. The next one, the science one is you can ask yourself about your organisation. Is it really a scientific organisation? Does it make decisions on scientific grounds or the opinion and gut feeling of a few? Are its products and services scientifically tested for effectiveness? Even customer satisfaction, is that scientifically tested? 
are decisions made based on evidence and reasoning rather than opinion and and power plays. It may be if you can move to a more scientific basis, then your organisation will improve. Property rights, I think this can apply to organisations, possibly in the form of intellectual property, or put another way, is the people who come up with clever ideas, do they get rewarded for it? Or are there a few people who tend to steal ideas or the, or the praise for ideas and manage to palm off the blame for bad ideas onto others? Is there a just system that the clever people, the people who do good things for your organisation, get appointed, get promoted, get ahead? Or are there some strange political criteria for which rewards people as opposed to rewarding the good ones, the ones that have provided good intellectual property to your organisation? The medical one, I do think, is, is important as well, is that does your organisation care about the health, the mental health and the well-being of uh, the employees or the people who work for them? Uh, is it family-friendly? Does it worry about people's weight? Are there maximum weight requirements in your organisation to keep people healthy? Are, are there fitness programmes? Are there exercise programmes? Can people get up from their workplace every so often, and exercise. Is their retirement catered for? Uh, are anxieties about retirement or unemployment catered for? So this might be more a mental well-being, but uh, also are they treated well when they get sick? Need to, of course, be careful not to overdo it. I think there's a, there's a limit to what you can do. The people in the organisation have to come to the party and there's another concept later on called the worth ethic that might balance this out a bit. Now the next one Neil Ferguson mentions is a consumer society which is about envy, people wanting to create their wealth, not having a culture where poverty and lack of money is considered to be a good thing. Now there's not really a moral issue in here I don't think. It's simply saying is that you need a culture in an organisation where people are striving to improve. It might well be to know more. To One assumes to be wealthier is to be more secure, more healthy, more happy in, to some extent. I think we could replace simply an ambition to be rich with an ambition to improve. A consumer society is wanting more and more of something, and hopefully this is skills, knowledge, and wealth, uh, which might well mean innovation. So your organisation is hungry for improvement. Hidden in there somewhere is exchange and trade, and understanding that a lot of this improvement or increase in wealth will come from improved trade and exchange, rather than from isolation. And the last one was his work ethic, which I think is about motivation. You've got to be careful that it's appropriate motivation. It's not just people gaming the system, that they are you know, well motivated towards whatever it is the, the organization wants to achieve. So we said if the company wants to be innovative, international, and uh, highly skilled and, and have good customer service, then the staff should be motivated towards that. I think... The universities again offer an interesting example here. I, th 
If we go back to the 70s and 80s, that the motivation levels were fairly low, the work level, the work ethic was fairly low. There were attempts to improve the amount of productivity in universities, but of course they simply said, well, the person who publishes the most articles gets the most reward, and then a whole gaming system developed where people simply published large numbers of articles in order to get promoted, and that the the pursuit of knowledge and excellence, including in teaching and research, may well have suffered. So we can translate the work ethic app or concept into a motivation. Are they appropriately motivated? Of course, all these apps or concepts intermingle. If you want a lot more detail on them, I suggest you go to YouTube and the BBC documentary called Civilization by Neil Ferguson. I think there's about five or six hours of it. But it's well worth watching. I think it's an excellent programme. My only counter to some extent is the work of Deirdre McCluskey, which I know Neil Ferguson refers to every now and then. She puts a lot more emphasis on prosperity came from a tolerance for ideas allowing people to think of a new idea and develop it without using power, be that the church or the landed gentry or culture, to kill people's attempts to be innovative. But I I read Neil Ferguson as saying, okay, you need that, but it needs to be formalised into institutions, such as Parliament or Scientific Society, etc., etc., or Protestant work ethic, etc., In fact, that's an interesting one because Deirdre McCluskey feels that what the Protestants offered was decentralisation and a a sort of community work agreement. Uh, You go back to the early Christians, what was noticed about them is that they almost had a a sort of communist commune about them. So a modern Protestant Protestant church in America is a decentralised thing. There's no Pope, there's no American church which they're all sort of subsets of. They're all independent churches, so it's a decentralised model. And when you go to these, not only do you get sort of fellowship, and but the congregation sort of implicitly agree to help the economic development of all those in the congregation. They, being wealthy and prosperous is what God wants of us. It's not all about guilt and shame, but it's about prosperity, that the religion includes a, a desire for prosperity, Again, on the basis that if you can feed people, you can educate them, and you can be more generous, and you can share money around, you can help people. If if you're financially desperate yourself, it's hard for you to help others. Okay, so for your assignments, you can ask yourself whether your organisation could do more of any of the six apps or concepts better. Could it put itself in a better position Remembering this is so that you improve the products and services that you offer as part of a more global ambition to improve the lives of all of us. Okay, thank you very much.